Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. Inspired by Adventure. Hello and welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Hall, and today I'm joined by legendary ski movie filmmaker, a director with Matchstick Productions, and the man who quite literally put the G in the game of NAR, Mr. Scott Gaffney. Morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you doing, Cameron? Yeah, very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on for an episode today. Um, how's your summer been? I imagine that you've probably been locked away uh, editing for most of the uh, most of the summer months. That is kind of my summer. I, I, you know, it, it's weird. I didn't get into this job to be inside all day, but that's just kind of the way the things roll with this whole filmmaking business. We get to spend our winters outside having fun, and then inside the entire summer. So. It gets a little tedious at times, but, uh, but I enjoy the process from A to B. Well, as most people that are familiar with Homelands and what we do know, uh, we started off our business really with hosting events for Matchstick Productions and we're delighted to be screening the UK premiere of Hook Year at the Soho Hotel in London on Friday, the 2nd of October. Um, it's obviously been a bit of a strange year, 2020. How did the COVID situation affect the film shoot side of um, production? Or, or did you manage to get everything that you needed in the can before the, uh, the pandemic hit? Well, surprisingly, we got more than we needed. I think one of our biggest challenges right now is how to shrink this movie down to, uh, to a shorter length. Uh, but we did miss out on you know, some of our major trips uh, tend to happen at the end of March and into April, especially we go, we had a big helicopter trip planned in uh, British Columbia and that got nixed. And that was kind of what a lot of the athletes put their money on. And they're like, we're doing that trip. That's going to be our, that's going to be where I'm really going to shine. And now uh, that obviously hit the floor and we had to adapt, but fortunately we have a lot of great athletes and they threw down in the time that they had through the season. And I mean, I think the movie that we have is pretty amazing, especially considering the circumstances. I would imagine in any given season um, for any annual film, there's anomalies that are thrown into the mix that you have to deal with anyway. So you're probably quite adaptable to uh, responding to scenarios, maybe not quite like this, but different things that kind of get thrown in, in the way of the plans. Yeah, you know, skiing is one of the most fickle uh, sports to try to shoot. You know, you're always dealing with weather. You're dealing with so many injuries. You're dealing with uh, things that are beyond your control so much. But this definitely was a whole other level. You know, we, we didn't see – none of us saw this coming. So, um, yeah, it's just another matter of adapting and making things flow from here. And uh, it's great to see that there's so much female representation um, included in, in Hook Yeah from the trailers that we've seen so far. How much of that was a direct response to last year's film, Return to Sender, which was an incredible ski movie, but very male-focused with no female athletes? How much of a, a conscious decision was that to maybe address that balance and perhaps a little bit of the criticism that came with having uh, uh, just a purely male film, having gone from you know a, a 
proportionally representative film with all in the pri- previous year, which got great reviews. Right. Well, I, I think part of the art of making a ski movie is, is just mixing things up a little bit. And I look at Return to Center, it was just an anomaly. Like it was our first year in what, 25, 27 years of Matchstick making a ski movie without a woman in it. And so that was just, it was just kind of the way things worked out. I know we did get a lot of criticism, but this wasn't so much a response to that criticism. It was just, okay, this is the movie we wanted to make this year. Last year was the movie we wanted to make that year. All in, we didn't do that to try to satisfy people to get women in there. That was the movie we wanted to make that year. So I think we just kind of, you know, you just kind of mix it up from year to year. And this is just the way things went this year. And, when you do receive um, criticism or um, any negative feedback, how, how does that affect you as, as a director and filmmaker? Do you, do you take that on board personally? Is it something that you do perhaps think about when you're um, considering future projects? And, and how, how does it affect you on a personal level? I, I did take the criticism pretty hard last year after Return to Center. I think a lot of people don't get to see behind the scenes what goes on and how it came about that we ended up with four main guys in our movie. Uh, that wasn't our choice. You know, we wanted to have a woman woman or women in that movie. We wanted to have the blondes who are heavily featured in this movie this year. We wanted them in the movie last year and it just didn't work out. And a lot of people won't accept that just didn't work out, but they don't know the, the story behind it. So it's, uh, you know, you can let it really eat at you. And I let some of those comments really eat at me. And uh, you just have to put it behind you and show them that you're, doing something different the next year and and then everything's going to be right again i think people are a little quick to jump on and come to conclusions about criticizing when they maybe don't get the bigger picture i think as a uh admirer and uh in of ski film movie genre it it can be a bit different or difficult i would say to perhaps change um what people want and when you try and do something maybe a little bit different or perhaps go off course somewhat from a creative standpoint or for maybe production reasons as you mentioned there um that the audience do sometimes have a reaction i'm thinking in particular of um 2016 ruin and rose which i thought was an incredible film and from an environmental perspective from a cinematography perspective yeah. was was fantastic but the i would say the traditional ski movie going audience had a bit of a reaction to that and it felt that you would, uh, with it being, you know, a lot of sand um, featured, maybe um, not as much snow as people expected to see, but it felt that you did listen to the fan reaction and that the following year you went back almost to the roots of, um, of Matchstick Productions with Drop Everything, which was, you know, really fun, sort of um, upbeat, kind of a bit, bit goofy in places, but equally, you know, stunning film with great you know athletes doing incredible things on snow so do you do you take you know some of the um the thoughts from the fans into the production notes and with with projects that you have planned for um years to follow we do for sure and i think one of the main things we've learned and what we did learn with ruin and rose is that the matchstick audience has a certain expectation and what it comes down to what it seems like what it comes down to is that people just want to go to a theater watch a movie get fired up have a good time and leave happy and i think you know that there's a place to get creative and there there are so many outlets for people to make movies these days and get stuff out there get content out there 
But for people that come to a matchstick movie, there's a certain thing that they want and there's a certain feeling they want to leave the movie with. And I, I think after Ruin Rose, we realized that. And, you know, as much as we'd like to do different things and we, and we try to put a little spice of, you know, a little different thing in each movie, in the end, we're, we're looking for the same general goal. And, and some people might call it a formula and there's a reason for it. You know, it's because people want that good feeling. They want to leave a movie pretty pumped and having watched good skiing and fired up for winter. And so I think that's kind of the route we're going. I think in the future, you know, we'll have more outlets for making more creative stuff in different ways, but maybe our, our main feature film is going to have the same, a similar feel to it each year. And that's not such a bad thing, I don't think. No, not at all. I, I think with Ruin and Rose, the way that I always think of the film and describe it is just visually scintillating. It was just beautiful to watch. And um, from having held the uh, UK premiere and we held the Swiss premiere out in Verbier as well, we found that actually the people that watched it who were not necessarily the hardcore kind of, you know, backcountry, you know, big mountain, uh, all-terrain type skiers, the people that were maybe a little bit more entry level in their skiing journey, or perhaps not really skiers at all, loved it. Um, right. Because they hadn't necessarily been exposed to what the typical traditional ski film is each year. It was their almost gateway or going like into the genre and they yeah. definitely had a, a really strong positive reaction to it which i thought was you know a really interesting way to think about opening up the ski movie genre to a wider audience who maybe hadn't considered it as a medium that they would enjoy right and i think msp is in a weird place because we want to tap into that larger market and, and interest them like that but we don't want to lose our core fans we've always been you know we're, we're not a warren miller and we don't necessarily want to be a warren miller we want to have that core audience that has been following us for 26 years or whatever it might be so it, it's it's a little tricky spot to be in but uh like you said i think ruin and rose from a cinematography standpoint was amazing i think ben sturgelewski the director did it did a great job it just wasn't enough of a ski movie for people and so they didn't they certainly didn't leave leave with that feel of being fired up to go skiing they're they're awed by us certain things but a little too much sand i suppose <laughs> and i think i'm right in, in saying it was actually awarded for cinematography as well i would i would sure i think it did at least uh at the powder awards i mean it it was spectacularly shot it was really uh Really impressive when you watch it from that standpoint. So coming back to Hook Yeah, this year's movie, um, as best as we can in podcast form, can you give us a little bit of a taste and a flavor of what's in store? Well, the, Hook Yeah is kind of all over the map. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's got a little a bit of a drop everything feel. It's not the most mature title in the world, um, admittedly so. But I think it allows us to do whatever we want with it. And we were, we were struggling with a, with a theme this year, you know, when everything fell apart with, with COVID, uh, we were like, what are we left with? And in the end, there was a lot of, lot of uh, video and audio of people at the end of lines just throwing out the F-bomb and saying, yeah. So it was just kind of felt right. Like, okay, let's just, that's, that's basically encapsulating everything that we want this movie to be about is that that stoke at the bottom that uh, people are naturally saying. So 
we've got we've got stories we've got some little skits we've got some really weird stuff um and we've got some soul skiing and absolute ripping so it's it's kind of all over the map and i i, I like movies that go in waves you know there's there's high points there's some points where you bring it down a little bit then you go back up and i like movies for just being entertaining i think that's what we're trying to do with this one is just make it entertaining start to finish it sounds like the perfect form of escapism from everything that everybody's had to deal with this yeah. year so yeah we can't wait to to share it um uh, with, the, with the audience over here and uh, uh yeah we're really excited um, right and just just picking up on the, on the point of themes there i mean how important is it for you um within the production to actually go into uh, a shoot with a theme in mind you know sometimes we do i think uh Obviously, with All In, we did, and last year with Return to Center, we did, and, and building a story around, building a movie around just four people. There was a pre-plan. Um, drop, yeah, drop everything. I think we had a little plan going into it. Ruin and Rose was obviously fully scripted and planned out. Uh, this year was more just start shooting and see what happens. And I think that this is a, this is a sport and kind of a, it's a sport where you can't really dictate everything that's going to happen to, to your year, basically. And you've got to be flexible. And I, I think in that, it's, it's fun to kind of just let things play out sometimes. We, we had a bunch of stories that we had planned to do. We have uh, certain individuals where there were going to be stories and other people were just like, let's not force a story and let's just go shoot them because they're such ripping skiers. So it's fun to have a little mix like that. I would like get, to get back and, and shoot something that's entirely scripted, but obviously that's a lot harder to do and it doesn't always go your way uh, because skiing, you've got crazy things happening and you never necessarily get what you want. But um, it's good to go in with a mix of, of you want this as an outcome for certain things and other things you just roll with it and shoot whatever you get. In, in doing what you've been doing for you know, the best part of 30 years or more now, going back and thinking back to those early days, could you um, perhaps tell us a little bit about your first memories on skis, your first memory um, with a camera, and how those two points merged and met in your life to be able to set you on the path of what you're doing now? Interesting. Well, I started skiing when I was three years old um, in a little place called Big Tupper in the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. And, uh, I guess one of my earliest memories there was breaking my leg when I was five years old, tib fib spiral fracture. And my dad was a volunteer ski patrolman had to leave me on the hill to go get a sled, go back up the T bar and come around for me. Um, so that, that they set, my parents set me in the path early. And as far as getting a camera, well, I, I always had kind of a photogenic eye and I liked seeing things through a frame and so I took a lot of still photos as a kid, got a, got one of those weird Kodak. I don't know if you had them in England, but uh, they're like the long, thin camera and uh, took a lot of shots with those. And then I went to school for video and film production to uh, university at Ithaca College in Southern New York and studied for four years. Didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I think my, my culminating project, my final year in college was to make a kind of a little documentary about myself and my desire to go skiing 
and I bought a camera when I was moving west from New York and just started filming when I got out into Colorado and one thing led to another and here I am this many years later having gone nowhere with my life other than doing the same old thing for so many years. I think you've done pretty well. It uh, must have been a fun journey so far. It's been um, a good ride. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, just, just going back to, you know, going to college and, and, and studying film, did you go in with the intention of, okay, I want to be a, uh, you know, a ski film movie maker. I want to be a, that's the, the genre that I want to specialize in. Or did you, did you dabble in other areas? Was it, you know, did you, did you look at, you know, I don't know, horror or comedy or, and, and how did, how did maybe learning about other genres factor into what you're doing today? Well, oddly enough, I was, I thought maybe I'd be like a, a news anchor or something like that. So, so far different from where I ended up, but I was a ski film geek all along and my passion for skiing just kind of built. I was at a place where you couldn't really ski a whole lot. And my brother moved to Colorado when I was a junior, that's my uh, third year. And I had one more year to go. And I just started hearing his stories so much more about the skiing he was doing out in Colorado. And then I saw, saw Greg Stump's Blizzard of Oz, and that just changed my life. My, I remember walking out of the building that night where I'd watched it, and my life just had a whole different focus. And I realized, okay, I'm going skiing. That's number one. And whatever I end up doing with it and doing with this film production career, I have no idea, but skiing is going to be my priority. So I did that, and as I said, I bought a, bought a camera along the way when I moved west. And it all rolled from there. And my understanding is you were you were out there making your own films, and then you were at uh, a festival in um, in Crested Butte, I believe, and that's yeah, when you, you you met um, the guys from Matchstick, and that's when that relationship sparked. When they gave you, did they give you a um, a roof over your head when you were they found out that you were sleeping in your car? <laughs> you did just some research. Uh, where'd you find that? I, yeah, I was sleeping in my car. It was absolutely frigid and I just made, made my own movie, independent movie. You know, I was, I was working as a lift off in, in uh, Keystone, Colorado at the time. And I had no money. So just sleeping in my car, freezing. I think it was probably minus 20 those nights. And yeah, they heard I was sleeping in my car and Steve Winter said, hey, come crash at our place because I met, met them at the film festival. We were competing against each other. And yet he said, come, come stay at my house. And uh, so I did. We had a little conversation uh, there for a while. I remember him saying, you know, maybe you'll work for us one of these days. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And, and then I went back to make my own movies for a few years. And then when he got injured in a heli crash that uh, killed three people, um, he was no longer able to get out on snow and they needed another filmer. And I happened to be a guy that was available and they offered me the job. And now here I am this many years later. My introduction to your work with a conscious knowledge, um, whilst I'd seen the films and, you know, when I've been working in resorts myself, you know, the always on in bars and things, but my real conscious knowledge was, uh, an introduction to to you as a filmmaker um, was NAR, um, which is obviously you, as we said in the introduction, the G in NAR comes from uh, yourself and, and your brother, uh, Rob. Um, and the thing that I enjoyed the most about that film was just how fun it was. And 
you know, it would put, put a smile on my face. Um, what was that process like of making um, uh, a film, which I imagine was perhaps more of a passion project, um, and also in terms of honouring a you know a really good friend of yours who was Shane McConkey, who sadly left us way too soon. Um, and could you maybe talk us a little bit more about how that game came about and got turned into a film, and also um, what your personal record is on the number of NAR points that you've scored? Well, the game of NAR came from a lot of us. A lot of it was Shane and I used to be roommates, and we would sit around and just. Uh, just imagine these ridiculous things that we could do. And, and at some point, Shane started writing things down. He was a guy who not only thought of things, but he was like, I'm going to make this happen somehow. So we would think these ridiculous things like how funny would it be to, um, how funny would it be to like be calling your mom in the middle of a line or, or things like, and he liked, pushing you outside your comfort zone and putting yourself in these positions where you just didn't really like to be in like the, like, uh, what is it? Uh, the ego claim of skiing up to people and saying, I'm the best skier on the mountain. Like that's, that doesn't feel good doing something like that, but it's also really funny. So he was always entertained by that kind of stuff. And when my brother made this book, Squallywood, he was like, Shane have at it, you know, put, let's put this chapter in there. And so it was all our cumulative ideas to put into this chapter into this uh, guidebook of skiing squaws, raddest lines. And when Shane died, uh, like the, the NAR thing was, was pretty big in squaw, but it was just kind of this comical thing. And some people would show up and be cooking breakfast in line and early in the morning, you know, just as a joke or whatever. And, and maybe you'd have some pole whacking going on, but, it, but it wasn't all that big of a deal. But when Shane died, unofficial networks, which was based out of squaw at the time, it was unofficial squaw. They came up with this concept of, of making a movie and they, they found a, someone who would throw down, what was it? 25 grand. I think it was as a, a winner take all prize. If you could win the game of NAR. And I actually, I wasn't involved at all in the filming process. I wasn't even there for it. Um, I was traveling, making the ski movie, but at the end of the year, after they had shot all this stuff, they basically just had this pile of footage with no idea what to do with it. And so they talked to me and said, here's this, can you make something out of this? And so I took it from there and that was, it's kind of funny because we had no idea what NAR was going to be as far as a movie. And it, probably is how a lot of people know my name because it blew into something that we had no expectation of blew up. It it feels like um, your name is intrinsically linked with Shane. Um, Where and how did you first meet? I met him at a mogul contest when he was competing on the Bud Pro Mogul Tour. I just moved to Colorado maybe a year or two prior and I was out there shooting a friend of mine, Justin Patnode. He was like the, the local star in Summit County. And uh, we're at Arapahoe Basin. And he had said something about, you got to watch this guy. And, and I watched Shane go down the mogul course. And, and the guy was just insane. And he ended up, he, what's the story? He delivered pizzas to my brother's house at, in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Well, where my bro- brother was going to school 
And when Shane was delivering pizzas to their house, he saw a bunch of skis lined up against the wall. He's like, Hey, you guys should come out and check out our movie. Uh, I'm in this ski film. Um, it'd be really cool if you guys came and checked out our premiere and it was showing there on campus at the university of Colorado and it was a Nick Nixon film. And so they went and they watched this movie and they're like, Holy cow, the Domino's pizza guy totally rips. And so there was a little backstory there in that they'd seen, my brother had seen this guy before and a friend of his had seen this guy. And then we all just kind of made this connection in Colorado while he was on the Bud Pro Mogul tour. And then he ended up doing the infamous uh, getting kicked out of Vail where he was living after doing a naked run uh, on the, through the Mogul course. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to live in Vail anymore. I don't know where I'm going to go. And, and I had just moved to California to Lake Tahoe and we said, Shane, you got to move out to Squaw. And I, I didn't know it was going to happen, but he grew up at Squaw and he's like, okay, um, I'll come on out there. And he moved and we were just shooting ever since. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much the, the long story short, still in a long form though. Um, when it came to making um, the brilliant documentary McConkey there must have been so much archive footage that you had to go through um, to put the film together. During that editing process, did you find, uh, come across any footage that perhaps that surprised you, that maybe um, gave you an insight into something in Shane's life that you didn't perhaps know about? I think part of, one of the main things I saw in going through his footage was the dark time in his life. And we kind of, we shine a little light onto that. And I didn't know the depths to which he had gone when he was, when he was living in Boulder, Colorado. And he felt like his world was kind of falling apart because you just always see him as this guy who's just lighting up the room whenever he comes in and he, and he's fully entertaining. And, and, and I never saw a dark side to him the whole time I knew him but he had this low point in his life for sure when he was kicked off or he was kicked out, kicked out of school and couldn't make the ski team and really had no direction. And so I, I guess if there was one thing that really surprised me, it was that period of his life because you wouldn't expect that out of him because he had such this jovial sense about him. And when you look back now, how important do you feel that it was that you actually met each other in the development of both of your careers? You know, you being behind the camera and giving him, you know, a stage and a platform and him being that entertainer and character and, and pioneer that he was. Yeah, I, I can't feel like I took much credit for his career, but at the same time, I did play a large role in it. Like when you look through a lot of that footage from where he became a known guy, I was there for a hell of a lot of it. And so it was just, it was just a great mutually beneficial relationship. And the fact that we lived together for like three years during that formative time too, like there was so much happening and it was so easy for us to just get together, come up with ideas and go shoot. And like one of the, my, my most memorable days ever filming, it was just him and me. And I, I was almost, I was roadside up on Donner Summit in California. 
and we would just point something out like, how about you go do that? And, and he'd go up there and hike and do it. And there was no one else around. Like there was no still photographer or anything. It was just the two of us and uh, just our communication and our bond and, and making it happen. And it was, it was just a great relationship in, in that sense. And how do you, how would you um, describe uh, Shane's legacy today in, in 2020? It still lives on. I'm amazed by the younger generations who I still see honor him and, and pay him with these tributes of, of skiing naked or, or calling things a McConkie term or, you know, you still see the saucer boy influence and it's still ever present, which is really, really cool. And, and I think it's just the joy he exuded and how he made fun, made everything fun. And, and, that's never going to go away. You know, I mean, that's, that's why we're, we should be alive is to have fun and no one had more fun than Shane. So people want to emulate that. I think that's, that's rad. I think it's quite a powerful thing when you consider we're on opposite sides of the pond, having conversation about probably something that started off as maybe a little bit of a, an inside joke between you guys. And now it's, you know, it's become something which, as an example, a friend of mine, um, another Cameron in Revelstoke, runs uh, an annual Narde at the end of the season, which has been going for 10 years strong now. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, that they're, they're getting together as a group of people on the mountain, having fun, celebrating, um, you know, the, their passion for the sport and honouring Shane's legacy, I think is quite a, quite a powerful um, thing to still continue on to this day. Yeah, it's crazy. I've been in Revelstoke for that. That's that time of year for, except for this year because things fell apart with COVID, but for like the five years prior, and I never was able to get there for that day because we were always out filming, doing another thing. But that, that cam has always been like, man, you got you to gotta hit us up. Hopefully it's going to be an ugly day. And we always seem to have a sunny day and we're going out in a helicopter instead of, uh, instead of doing that. But yeah, I mean, people like him putting on these, nar days or whatever they might be to honor shane it's so awesome i love it and there's always been a sense of fun within your filmmaking uh, did that come from shane or did that come from um other inspirations i think he opened me up a lot and, and to, I'm, I'm a pretty quiet i'm a shy guy and i i don't i didn't have the same personality as shane i might have had the same humor buried a little more inside but I think he taught me that put it out there, you know, just, just let it go. And I, I, I have him to thank for that. And, and yeah, people like having fun. And so I like to show fun and I'm, I'm heavily influenced by things like Saturday night live and, and stupid movies. You know, I've, I, I'm, I like to think I'm pretty smart, except my, my humor is, is totally stupid. I like movies like airplane and dumb and dumber and naked gun and, and, you know, ridiculous stuff, Zoolander. But, uh, there are a lot of influences, but Shane would probably be the number one for me in terms of humor and making, making comedy. When you look back at your, um, filmmaking career to this, at this point in time, um, whether it's a particular scene or a particular segment or a, maybe even something sort of behind the scenes that we might not know about, what would you say has been your biggest triumph uh, in your filmmaking career? And, and also maybe the biggest 
disaster, something that maybe didn't quite go as planned as you had hoped it would do in the production room? I can think of one back in the film days. Uh, there, there was one line that Jeremy Nobis skied in Sixth Sense in 1998 where my camera just wigged out in the film. Uh, I, there, I remember Kristen, I, I don't even remember the events behind it, but he'd ski this amazing line. And for some reason it hadn't worked on film before. And I was going to get the first amazing shot of it. And Kristen Pondella had this shot of me with my whole film camera opened up with the film just all over the place, like in the full broad daylight. I can't remember exactly what happened, but Oh man, that was uh, that was something that didn't go. Oh, here's here's one. Is I was shooting for this movie Breathe in 1997, and I shot this guy, this guy Fun Fun, skiing this line in uh, Hellbrunner in the backside of the Italian side of um, of Chamonix, and he skied this amazing tube, and it was like through this rock the this overhanging rock and it was just one of the most amazing things I'd ever shot. And I was like, okay, I've got to really save this film. So I put it, put these five rolls of like the most crucial film into this film safe bag. And I didn't, I didn't want to take it through the x-ray machines of the, uh, the airport for the carry on bag. So I put on this film safe bag, put it into my main duffel bag and checked it onto the plane. Well, I learned that's a big mistake, especially because the tag came off my bag and they ended up having to put it in the bomb room of the Amsterdam airport for several days where they nuked it with just about everything they had to find out what was in this bag. And all the prize shots from that trip came back with this orange, like this orange glow. And I had to actually say that in their narration because there was no way I wasn't going to use that footage in the movie. Uh, because it was the line was too amazing and and it would have just absolutely crushed me but um but so that was that was totally blowing it from a filmmaking perspective i realized okay never never check your check your film in the bag take it with you on the plane but uh so that's one of the worst as far as accomplishments or anything of that nature i don't know i guess I mean, it's pretty cool to win, win like movie of the year. We won a bunch of those and then that feels really good. But I think just what's more important is getting really cool comments from people and getting fan mail. And I think maybe some of that comes back to my earliest moments as a filmmaker and uh, getting fan mail with, with some of the first movies I made, I think is one of the coolest things. I made this movie Walls of Freedom in 1995. And I still remember getting a letter from a guy who said, some kid who said before seeing walls of freedom, I wanted to go to school and I had all these plans to do this and that. And now all I want to be is a bum. <laughs> like that was one of the most rewarding letters I've ever gotten or messages I've ever got. I, I inspired this kid to give up on real life and pursue that path of just having fun. And I thought that was pretty damn gratifying. Obviously the scene has changed an incredible amount you know with with the way that technology's accelerated and you know everybody's a filmmaker almost these days um what do you see as the future of the ski movie industry it's a, it's a tough one it's actually you know it's it's been we've we've watched things 
uh, whittled down a little bit. And, you know, you, you have a lot of naysayers saying, you know, ski movies are dead. But at the same time, when you go to one of our premieres, people are there and they all feel good being together and, and getting that Jones on, on for skiing. And they're all fired up. And there, there's something about that vibe of being around those premieres that is super special. And I think that's, that isn't going to go away as long as COVID doesn't prevent us. Or, you know, the pandemic is like the biggest killer because who knows what's going to be happening. I mean, sounds like you guys have things rolling this year, which is great. We don't know what a tour uh, holds for us this fall in the States. Hopefully Canada is going to be in a lot better situation and, and be able to do things. And so, you know, in that sense, thing with this pandemic, things are up in the air. But as, as far as getting together with your buddies and, and going to see something that inspires you and gets you fired up for skiing, I think that outlet is still there and it's still viable. And, and it's something that people love. And it would be a shame to not have it. I completely agree. I think there's something... Um almost quite nostalgic in the sense in the almost ritual of doing it because we're so exposed overexposed to content now that um to be able to get together in a shared experience because skiing can be um it can be a very social sport but it also can be quite a, it's an individual sport ultimately at the end of the day and actually to get together with like-minded individuals and share your stories i think is quite a rare thing now that you know People just sit behind the screen on their laptop and watch things on YouTube or Netflix. And, you know, that's fine too. And there's a time and a place for that. I think there's something quite unique and um, precious about having that shared experience and getting together in a room. And there's nothing quite like the whooping and hollering of people, you know, on a big screen. And I know in in the States, the, uh, the uh, going to um, a cinema uh, for a Hollywood film maybe has a little bit of that experience, but certainly here in the UK, if you go and watch a film and somebody's cheering at the regular, um, you know, cinema, people will be telling you to shut up. And there's kind of a cardinal <laughs> sin to be able to make any noise at all during right. a film. So it's a little bit of that outlet to kind of, yeah, yeah. Have a, have a really good time and, and have no inhib- inhibitions in the theater. Right. Yeah. I still, I still remember back. I mean, this is years ago, so it doesn't necessarily apply to how things are, are going today, but there was a time of one of our premieres in 2004 in uh, Boulder, Colorado, which is a college town and people are all super amped. And I remember Shane when did uh, the, the first ski base and uh, like people didn't even see it coming. This one guy just stood up and was just like, yeah, like it, it was the coolest feeling to just to be sitting there and seeing that. And that's, that's something I actually really enjoy is going to premieres and, and watching how other people are react, reacting. Like it's, it's really rewarding to, to see the look on people's faces as they're watching our movies. So I think it's a really cool thing to do. Um, I think there is a, a bit of a, a, you know, mentioning sort of Hollywood films is a, we live in an age of nostalgia now um, and everything's a remake and, uh, you know, the original content isn't as prominent as it maybe was sort of 20, 30 years ago. From a filmmaking perspective, would you ever consider almost going back to your roots in terms of making a film with, in the, in the old fashioned way, 
with uh, I've, I think I've heard in previous interviews you talk about sort of the 12 minute reels that you would have um, to be able to shoot and the sort of the, the linear uh, editing process. Would you ever go back from a filmmaking perspective, maybe for a one off project to almost honor your roots and, and, and make a ski film in that way? Or is it just too archaic now? It's just it's too archaic. It, it was well, the editing has been fairly similar actually for the last 20 years or so. Um, I would never go back to the editing I was doing 25 years ago. Like when I made this movie Walls of Freedom, yeah, it was a whole linear setup and it was crazy. I would have to write out the lyrics of a song and I, if I wanted to put in any narration, I'd have to sit there with my fingers on the toggle and lay the song in and right after a certain lyric, I'd have to know that I'm, okay, I'm turning it down to this, to a lower level, so that's where I'll put my narration. So I'd have that down for eight seconds, and then I'm gonna put it back up, because that's how long my narrate. like, it's so crazy thinking back to, that's how you had to do it. Um, so there's no way I'd wanna go back to that. I think there is some uh, fondness for film, and it would be pretty cool to shoot film again, but it's, it's pretty cost prohibitive. It's, uh, you know, every three minutes was 110 us, $110. And, and so that was pretty crazy, but man, it was nice to, you would change your cans of film during the day. It only takes maybe a couple minutes to change a can of film. And at the very end of the day, you change your final can out, you put it in a new load, set up for tomorrow, put your, put your uh, batteries on the charger and then you were done. And now, you know, you spend your, you finish a day and you spend your whole evening there putting, you know, dumping your footage onto drives and checking out shots and, and whatever. You don't have the same freedom that you used to have back then. So there's, there's a fondness for that. And there's fondness for the look of film too. Film still has a really cool feel to it. And it's, you felt like you were doing something a little more real than just pushing a button. For anybody today that's thinking about, uh, you know, maybe me making some uh, edits, even just for their own social media channels, if they're wanting to get kind of started out, um, what would be your kind of top tips for somebody who wanted to make their own um, ski film? I think I do have people ask me this quite often. And I think one of the, the one of my main responses is try to just think of something you can do differently than everyone else does. And I, I think there, there's so much out there and everything's so saturated. It feels like everything's been done. I mean, that, that's one of the biggest problems with making ski movies is you come up with an idea and you're like, oh, I got this really great idea. Okay, here's what we could do. And then a few minutes later, someone sends you a link of someone who's done it in another sport or whatever it might be. It's like, oh, great, you know? And, and so just keep trying to try to come up with different ideas and think of different angles and whatever it may be. Just, just try to make yourself stand out in some unique way rather than try to put out more content because there's so much out there and there's so much talent out there in every respect. Um, you just got to figure out a way to make yourself stand out a little bit. Past, past and present uh, included people that are with us and people that aren't. What would be your dream shoot with the dream crew, um, the dream sort of athletes, and in, in the dream location, if you could assemble it all together, uh, what, what would that look like? 
Whew, that is that is a tough one. Uh, I always wanted to do a dream shoot with Sean Pettit, Candide Tovex, and I think the third person was Richard Perman. Um, I, I thought that would have been the most amazing powerhouse crew ever. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know. I, I think that as far as one point in my life now, now we've got so much more talent, uh, these days, Sam Cooch is just an amazing athlete to work with. Marcus Ader, uh, is insane. Michelle Parker has always been a favorite to shoot with her. There, there are way too many people when you actually start looking at the bigger picture, but, um, yeah, Candide, Sean Pettit, and Richard Perman was would have been like the insane threesome right there. That sounds like something that might have been on the table at one point, or am I perhaps uh, reading a bit too much into that? Uh, it no, it was never fully on the table. It was discussed, but never fully with the athletes. Like I think I ran the idea by Candide at one point. He was just like, "Oh yeah, it sounds kind of cool," but I, I, he was moving into bigger projects of different kinds. Uh, at the time, and then Pettit was kind of m- moving out of snowboarding right at that time, and then uh, a little while later, Perman got hurt, and so things just kind of that that whole trio fell apart. And uh, is there anybody in your illustrious career that you haven't worked with that you would really love the opportunity to work with? Kelly Slater. <laughs> I, I would love to shoot surfing. Oh, that would be one of. One of my main things, um, but, huh? You know, it's pretty crazy when I go look back on my career and, and think of who I've shot with. I, I can't think of many people. Um, I, guess, I guess Tom Walsh is a guy we wanted to have in, in our movie this year. Uh, it didn't end up happening. COVID kind of shut that out. He was going to be on that, that trip at the end of the year that we were going to do. And uh, he, he's always been, you know, an insanely talented individual that I'd like to hook up with. And he's got a work ethic that's pretty insane. Um, no, I, my, my big wish is to shoot, shoot some surfing. That, that's, pretty, that's pretty much it. So that's going a whole different tangent. And from stalking your Instagram, I think you had the opportunity to meet Kelly Slater a few years ago. I did. I was kind of geeking out and uh, I got a dream trip to the North Shore that uh, a friend of Red Bull hooked me up with and I was just walking the beach and boom, there he was. I actually was kind of paparazzi style of, uh, of I saw these guys and kind of following them around. But that's a really cool thing about the, the North Shore of Oahu is that when, when it's that time of year, you've got all these stars just all over the place. And I'm a huge ski or a huge surf geek watching all the uh, WSL events and, and watching movies and all that. And, and so that's, that's my freedom spot of in my other life of just being the total uh, surf dork on that side of things. But he ended up being a really cool guy to me. We talked for a little bit and got a photo with him doing the whole shock bra. But, uh, uh, and is he a skier himself? Did you have that conversation? I, I wouldn't think so. There aren't a whole lot of surfers who ski. I know uh, Sebastian Zietz was, was a skier at one point. Dave Kalama is a, a skier. I can't imagine, you know, obviously naturally it translates better to snowboarding. But, um, but yeah. 
And do you find much time to be able to get out onto the water with, you know, if you're filming all winter and you're editing all summer, where does the surfing fit? You know, parenting fits in more than the surfing fits in. And so I really don't get into the water a whole lot, which means I have to make do with whatever I can get, which means surfing in Lake Tahoe anytime we get uh, windy swells here. You know, maybe happens a dozen days a year. Um, it's a lake, so we don't get a whole lot of surf here, but it's a big enough lake and we get potent enough storms that create a lot of wind and we can get shoulder head high waves here. It's just rare and it usually happens in the midwinter. So that, that's, that's one of my outlets though, for sure. And we, we mentioned your brother earlier, um, uh, Rob. Um, I know he has been of ill health of late. Um, How is he doing? He's doing all right. He's actually... In a hospital right now, he's going through uh, bone marrow cancer that's uh, progressed into a form of leukemia. And he had a stem cell transplant last November that looked like everything went as well as possibly could have. And about three months later, he relapsed. And so now he's been going through just a horrible process. And he's, he's had ups and downs and uh, some gnarly times, but he's going in he's in for his second stem cell transplant tomorrow. So fingers are crossed that all is going to go well. He was, he was just here at, at home in Tahoe, what, what, maybe four days ago. And we we went out for a good long walk and you know, like his spirits are high. He was feeling good at that time. He's got this weird black stuff on his tongue. He had a fungus in his lungs like a week prior to that. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on, but man, hopefully they can cure this thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, certainly send our best wishes. Um, and, and how much of a role has he played in your career in, uh, in terms of um, you're, you're perhaps more on the skiing side? Um, uh, it sounds like you, you're pretty close together in age and following him out, um, out west. Uh, yeah. What sort of a role has he, a figure has he been in your life? Uh, he's been a huge influence in my life. He was always a better skier than I was, even though he was two years younger than I was. And, uh, yeah, just him move, moving to Colorado, I wanted to be close to where he was. And, uh, and so I was, and we were filming all together. It was kind of like the relationship with me and Shane with best buddies having a camera, but my brother and I were best buddies and he's the most, one of the most fluid skiers in the world. He just had these quiet hands and he was, uh, he was ballsy, but just had the, the mellowest style to him. That was just a pleasure to watch. So I, uh, it was just that relationship of, yeah, let's, you know, let's just go out and shoot. And we shot all the time. And, and so he started in a number of my movies for quite a while until he went to medical school. And then he was, he was busy with that for a while. And still we were making movies while he was in medical school. Um, but yeah, man, uh, it's, it's, uh, he's been a great ski partner. He's moved a lot more into the backcountry side of things. Uh, he does some super long tours. He's an absolute, absolute machine out there. I have stayed immature and I still like to jump off stuff. And so our, our styles don't mesh together quite as much, but we, we get in tours whenever we can and we'll still ski on the mountain at Squaw when we can. He, he destroyed his knee a couple of years ago, had a full dislocation to the point where a lot of people who have that injury end up getting amputated. And so that's probably cut him down from jumping off stuff quite a bit. 
now he's got this cancer thing that's really taking him down. But uh, hopefully he's going to be right back out there doing doing some touring this coming winter, and I'll be right by his side. Fantastic. Um, and just to wrap things up, what's the best pro skier call-out story that you have? Oh, uh, that's one thing I wish I had asked Kelly Slater. I wish I had – if I had any regret, regret, it would have been asking him that if he's ever been called out because I know it's branched out in a lot of sports. I think the funniest pro call-out I have heard – I know Sean White got called out. A bunch of people have been called out, but I think it was from Colby West. And this is when NAR first came out, and he was at the X Games. And uh, I just remember this because he told me it shortly after it happened. He, he crashed on the very first rail in X Games. And, like, he just totally dejected. He's sitting in this bottom tent, and some kid pokes his head in the window or, like, pulls part of the tent aside and says, Colby West, I can't believe you're a pro. I'm so much better than you. And there he is just absolutely dejected and then some like 12 year old kids calling him out. And he thought he, he had no idea what NAR was. And that's where it's really funny is like when people are calling you out and you don't know what, what it's all about. And he thought it was because he had just eaten it on that rail just at the start of the course. So uh, just the fact that that caught him when he was at a real down point, I, I think is pretty funny looking back on it. But another funny thing with NAR was I think the very next year we were in Silverton and, and uh, Silverton's a mountain in Colorado where they have, it's all done by guiding. And the guides told us when we we're in Silverton, they're like, you absolutely ruined our jobs because they will be guiding people and they'll ski on down and the, the clients are supposed to follow them. They'll look back up and they said, people would just stand up there forever, just pull whacking the cornice. And they're like, man, you just killed this for us. It just slowed down their day. It was, it was tedious. Uh, but I find that stuff funny. Well, we can't wait to, uh, to have the UK premiere of Hockey Air, the Soho Hotel, Friday, the 2nd of October. Incredibly excited to, uh, to share it with our audience over here. Um, how much um, more editing is there to do? We have a time of set of the 24th is our lock-in date that's uh that's when everything's got to be done you know sometimes those get pushed around a little bit but we're saying picture lock on the 24th of august so that's what we're going for well anybody in the uk who would like to come and attend those particularly in london they can get their tickets by visiting the homelands website which is homelands.co.uk um, go on to the event section you'll find the relevant links there and for those of people who are listening outside of the uk and outside of london if they want to follow um a, a matchstick or um, purchase digital copy or learn a little bit more about um yourself scott where can they find you you can find me sitting right here in the editing room I, uh i guess uh, I have a website that hasn't been updated in 20 years. So uh, I would say scottgaffney.com, but you're not going to see anything fresh there. Um, just on the, uh, the skimovie.com site, which is now matchstickpro.com, but it's pretty easy to remember skimovie.com and it'll direct you to the matchstick site and everything's there. And all of the matchstick movies are there for free uh, in the vault. So you can just explore that site, check it out. And uh, there's a lot to see. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much for all the incredible films that you've given us over the years. We can't wait to see Huck Yeah, and we can't wait to see what you come up with in the years to come. 
Well, I appreciate it, Cameron, and I uh, hope everyone gets out there to enjoy it.